this kind of politics, it's, it's not actually conservative. Thank you. It's radical. It, it's yes. a vision that says, we're going to protect our power no matter what, even if it hurts the country. Yes. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Oh, that's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Santa Barbara on 98.7, in San Diego on 93.7, and Ridgecrest in China Lake, California on 99.5 FM. Up on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe. For your listening convenience, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I am Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. <clears throat> Desi Doyen, was that uh, that was today that Obama clip at the top of the uh, top of the show there? Yes, that was actually former president uh, US President Barack Obama at the University of Las Vegas rallying folks in Nevada to get out and vote. Sounds like a good idea, but I was glad to hear him say there that this is not the the, the Republicans are not conservatives. Yes, they are radicals. They are not conservatives. It's a bugaboo of mine for I don't know how many years here. These people are not conservative. They call themselves conservative because uh, it sounds good for branding, but it is simply untrue. And while I expect Republicans to lie about anything they can and want to these days, The fact that the media keeps describing them as conservative drives me absolutely batty. Yes, I can attest to that. But it is. uh, Yeah. And, you know, when I write for uh, for other newspapers, magazines and so forth, and they change my references to Republicans or right wingers, they change it to conservative. I have to tell the editor, no, change it back. Uh, Anyway, uh, coming up, uh, yes, we are watching the crucial midterm elections just two weeks from now, very closely, of course. And we'll talk about that uh, more. uh, We'll talk about more of the continuing concerns about those elections and whether voters will actually be able to vote and have their votes counted as cast shortly. Uh, But there remain concerns for lives, not just votes. 
of many living in Florida's panhandle still today, still fighting to survive after Hurricane Michael two weeks ago, where some folks, particularly in rural areas, are still without power and life-saving phone service. That uh, even worse than it otherwise might be situation is due in no small part to deregulatory actions by, yes, radicals at both the state and federal level of government in Florida by Republican Governor Rick Scott, who is now running to become a U.S. senator. And yes, by Donald Trump's FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, who gutted telecommunications regulations uh, that were enacted after Superstorm Sandy back in 2012 by the Obama administration's FCC. Those are not conservative moves. Those were radical moves. We'll talk about them shortly with publicknowledge.org's Harold Feld, specifically about the cost of those deadly deregulatory chickens that may now be coming home to roost in the storm-ravaged Florida panhandle even as Scott hopes to unseat Democratic U.S. Senator Bill Nelson and uh, his fellow deregulator, that would be Republican Congressman Ron DeSantis, is hoping to become the next governor of the Sunshine State in his race against Democratic Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum. Talk about that in a bit. Meanwhile, in Washington today, the controversy over the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the uh, Saudi consulate in Turkey continues as the Trump administration continues to run cover any way that they can for the Saudi regime, even after the Saudis admitted essentially that, yes, they lied for weeks when they said Khashoggi had simply left the consulate in Istanbul by a different door than the one he entered by. That lie was part of a cover-up of the journalist's murder by some 15 members of a Saudi assassination squad that was dispatched to Istanbul and, and closely linked with the dictatorship's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Like clockwork over the weekend, just days after Donald Trump had suggested that Khashoggi, Khashoggi's murder might have been the work of, quote, rogue killers— as opposed to that of Saudi Arabia's autocratic leadership. Top Saudi officials described the operation that resulted in Khashoggi's death as, quote, a rogue operation. That came after the Saudis uh, late on Friday had claimed that his death was due to a fist fight at the consulate. But they have still failed to locate Khashoggi's remains for some reason after that supposed fist fight. According to The Washington Post on Sunday, that explanation will face a fresh challenge on Tuesday when Turkish President Erdogan is expected to reveal details of his government's investigation into the killing, a move that could directly contradict Saudi Arabia's official account of what happened inside its own consulate there in Istanbul, Turkey. Erdogan said that he would explain the episode, quote, in a very different way. He uh, said on Sunday uh, th those comments were to the uh, semi-official An Anadola news agency. He said the incident will be revealed entirely, unquote. The Turks are reportedly in possession of audio and or video of the reportedly grisly dismemberment of the Post's columnist, 
who was also a Virginia resident. Senior Republican and Democratic officials proposed a range of severe punishments over the weekend, including sanctions on the longtime U.S. ally, the expulsion of the uh, Saudi ambassador, and the ending or reduction of arms sales. Nearly all of the calls for repercussions have centered on whether Mohammed bin Salman knew of or ordered the operation, says the Post. Saudi prosecutors said 18 people had been arrested and five top officials fired for their connection to the case. Two of the dismissed officials were among Mohammed's closest advisors. Now, President Trump initially said that the uh, Saudi explanation of Khashoggi's death was credible. He bought into whatever it was they had to say. He was buying into it. And then he bought into the most recent explanation on uh, on Friday. But in an interview with The Post late on Saturday, Trump conceded that there had been, quote, deception in that explanation. So he's also unable to use the lie word. Still, he defended Saudi Arabia nonetheless as a, quote, incredible ally and expressed hope that Mohammed bin Salman was not involved. This incredible ally of ours who murders journalists and lies about it. But here's one point that's been bugging me, frankly, chilling me uh, over the weekend, uh, I got to say, that I had only heard about for the first time late on Friday night after we got off the air from longtime listener Dale in Ohio, who pointed me to this uh, article from December of 2016 in the UK's Independent. And I'm troubled that I had not heard about this. Dale had commented at Facebook on uh, on in response to Friday's show to say, uh, quote, Khashoggi was originally banned by Saudi Arabia for criticizing Trump in the 2016 election. Which I had not heard about. I asked for a link. And uh, sure enough, from December, uh, December 5 of 2016 in the UK's Independent, They reported back in uh, late 2016, quote, a Saudi Arabian journalist and commentator has been banned by his country for criticizing U.S. president-elect Donald Trump. Jamal Khashoggi has been banned from writing in newspapers, making TV appearances and attending conferences, according to the Middle East Eye. After Khashoggi criticized Mr. Trump's Middle East policies at a Washington think tank on November 10 of of uh, of 2016. So this would be just after the election. An official Saudi spokesperson said he did not represent the kingdom in a statement to the Saudi press agency. And speaking at the Washington Institute, Khashoggi described Trump's stance on the Middle East as, quote, contradictory. Khashoggi Khashoggi said that while Trump had been vocally anti-Iran, he has hinted he will support Syria's president Bashar al-Assad, a move which will ultimately bolster Iran, said Khashoggi. Quote, the expectation that Trump as president will be starkly different from Trump as candidate is a false hope at best. He said at the time correctly. Yeah, he was absolutely right about that. Khashoggi was also quoted in a Washington Post article discussing potential changes in the Middle East as a result of Trump's election victory at the time. In that article, he described hopes 
for regional reconciliation as in uh, Syria as, quote, wishful thinking, which he said was at odds with Trump's, quote, apparent determination to ally more closely with Russia. He added when his advisors show him the map, will he realize supporting Putin means supporting the Iranian agenda? Khashoggi's weekly column in uh, the Al-Hayat newspaper did not appear this week. The Independent reported back in December of 2016, despite being published every Saturday for nearly five years. So he wasn't just any journalist who had been critical of the Saudi regime, as uh, many had been reporting on uh, Khashoggi uh, since his disappearance and then the, his murder came to light. He was a journalist who was specifically critical of Donald Trump. That seems kind of noteworthy to me in a case like this, and I'm not sure why that that has not been made clearer throughout the media's coverage of the various excuses that Donald Trump has been uh, making for the Saudi regime in this case. Well, the media here in the United States has the attention span of a gnat, so I'm not really surprised that they've forgotten this major portion. That, I, but I tell you, I, I, the, the Washington Post forgot it. That's this seems to be an important detail. I mean, he worked for the Washington Post. And they talked about, uh, you know, how he had been uh, critical of of Donald Trump. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not suggesting that Donald Trump had anything to do with the murder of this man. Um, But when we're talking about, you know, the way Donald Trump has been reacting to our supposedly, what did he say, excellent allies or fantastic allies in... uh, Incredible allies. Incredible allies in Saudi Arabia. He seems remarkably untroubled by this. Late last week, Business Insider picked up on this and noted that uh, Khashoggi was barred from writing and making public appearances by the Saudi royal family after he had criticized Trump in late 2016. Six months later, after that ban, again, that ban for being critical, or at least in part for being critical of Donald Trump, uh, he left his country in June of 2017 And they had prohibited him from making after he had uh, been blocked from making TV appearances and attending conferences. He then became a U.S. resident and he split his time between Virginia, Istanbul and London uh, while writing columns for The Post. Business Insider notes a report from 2017 from the U.S. State Department on Saudi Arabia human rights, where they uh, said, quote, well-known Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi said he moved to the U.S. in self-exile and could face arrest upon returning home due to his writing. He claimed his column in Saudi in the Saudi newspaper Al-Hayat had been canceled under political pressure. In 2016, authorities purportedly banned him from writing, appearing on television and attending conferences as the result of remarks he made that were interpreted as criticizing the president of the United States, according to multiple media sources. In uh, Business Insider goes on to note that uh, in a conversation with the Columbia Journalism Review in March of 2018, just a few months ago, Khashoggi reflected on that ban again as the result of criticizing Donald Trump. He said, I'm a believer in free journalism, despite all the limitations we had. 
He added, I was so insulted when the royal court called me and told me that I'm not allowed to write. In America, he added, you take freedom for granted. So that comment, uh, chilling, frankly, on its own right now, given the circumstances, is even more chilling in the light of Donald Trump repeatedly characterizing journalists as the enemy of the people over and over again. His celebration last week that we talked about on the show of Montana Congressman, Republican Congressman Greg Gianforte, and uh, his beating up of a journalist on the night before his special election back in 2017. Trump was uh, at a rally for campaign rally for Jan Forte in uh, in Missoula last week and celebrated the fact that uh, Jan Forte had body slammed a journalist from from The Guardian before going on to win, before being elected by Republicans in Montana and suggests it's even more chilling uh, now, given what we know about Trump's attempted cover-ups for the Saudi murder, and I don't know what else to call it, but attempted cover-ups for the Saudi murder and dismemberment of a Washington Post journalist. So, I don't know, just want to put that out there. Uh, This is not like Fox News, who had put out some nonsense about, oh, he, some people say Khashoggi was a terrorist or friends to terrorists or whatever nonsense they said. It's just out there, so I just want to put it out there. No, this is actually documented by not just the uh, British uh, independent newspaper, but also by the U.S. State Department. So, yeah, we do take uh, freedom for granted in this country. That needs to stop. We also take the right to vote for granted in this country. At least a lot of us do. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with uh, some of the efforts to fight for that right uh, as still infuriatingly uh, necessary in this country just two weeks before the 2018 midterms, which... Many are, I would say, correctly describing as the most important elections of our life. And as Donald Trump took to the Twitters over the weekend to stoke phony GOP uh, voter fraud claims again, voter fraud by Democrats, as he does. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Right now, we've got a chance to restore some sanity to our politics. Right now, we can tip the balance of power back to you, the American people. Because ultimately, there is only one real check on abuses of power. There's only one real check on bad policy, and that is you and your vote. You. Ain't that the truth? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was former President Barack Obama speaking in Las Vegas at a rally today. 
calling on Americans to restore sanity to this country. Yes, please. Uh, if you've been uh, reading the polls, and of course the uh, media are obsessed with polling, uh, what that what it means and doesn't mean for Democrats taking back the House, trying to win the Senate, et cetera, et cetera, contests across the uh, the, the country when it comes to uh, governors' races and others. Just ignore those polls, please. You will find as many that are encouraging that you want to believe in as you will find that are disappointing and troubling that you would rather didn't didn't exist at all. None of them matters. The only poll, as we always say, the only poll that matters is the one that is on Election Day. The voters who show up, the voters who get to vote, the voters who are who have their votes counted and counted as cast that we will fight for. I saw a flow chart that somebody uh, published on uh, Twitter that said uh, started this way. Uh, reading the latest polls. OK, next item. Do the polls look good? Next item, no. All right, then effing vote. <laughs> Coming off of that same question, do the polls look good? The other answer is yes, which then points to effing vote. Yes, by all means, the only thing that actually matters in all of this is getting out and voting on November 6th or in early voting. Or early. Speaking of which, on Friday, Donald Trump tweeted, uh, quote, Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be a great governor. He has been successful at whatever he has done and has prepared for this very <laughs> difficult and complex job for many years. Well, that's true, ain't it? Uh, Brian Kemp, the Republican secretary of state who is running for governor against Democrat Stacey Abrams in Georgia, who would be the first female African-American governor, by the way, in the nation if she wins. They are said to be neck and neck right now uh, in the polls. Well, Brian Kemp has successfully been working and preparing for years for this race by suppressing voters, by purging hundreds of thousands from the rolls, by denying new registrations, by blocking more than 50,000 voters from uh, being properly registered from a full registration, according to the Associated Press. And that is after purging more than 600,000 voters alone last year from the rolls. And several hundred thousand of those have been wrongly purged, according to a new study. Uh, add that to the rate of absentee ballots that are being rejected now in the um, in the state of Georgia. Some 40 percent of them coming from one county alone, Gwinnett County, which now the Coalition for Good Governance and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights are suing to force them to uh, take some actions that will allow some of those uh, voters uh, who have been rejected, whose absentee votes have been rejected, possibly improperly, will give them the opportunity to cure those ballots. In fact, um, some 70 uh, percent of the ballots that have been rejected have been from African-American voters, despite the fact that uh, African-American voters only make up something like 13 percent of uh, the population in the state of Georgia. So, yes, Brian Kemp has been successfully preparing for this job for many years, as Trump tweeted on Friday. He finally Trump finally got something right on the Twitters, <laughs> although not the way that he meant, I suspect. He then tweeted, get out and early vote for Brian Kemp. He will be a great governor for the state of Georgia on Saturday. Then 
Trump tweeted, quote, all levels of government and law enforcement are watching carefully for voter fraud in all caps, including during all caps early voting cheat at your own peril. Violators will be subject to maximum penalties, both civil and criminal. Kristen Clark of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law president of that uh, group issued a statement in response to that on Sunday. She said President Trump's statement regarding vote fraud is one of the most naked attempts to promote voter suppression that we have seen in modern time. His statement is intended to promote fear and incite law enforcement to action in ways that could chill voter participation this midterm election cycle. Meanwhile, this administration and the Justice Department's silence, she notes, regarding widespread voter suppression has been deafening. To date, this Justice Department has failed to file a single case to enforce the Voting Rights Act. A single case in two years. And they have failed to take any action to protect the rights of minority voters. Instead, Clark notes, we see the president using his platform to promote unsubstantiated and false claims about vote fraud. What is most dangerous about the president's statement is the suggestion that government and law enforcement across the country are activating to prosecute voters. This is nothing more than an open and brazen attempt to use the threat of criminal prosecution to intimidate minority voters. She says, an old and familiar tactic that dates back to the Jim Crow era. It does. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law has been actively filing litigation across the country to address voter suppression efforts in the 2018 midterm election cycle. And in fact, as I note, they just joined that case that was filed by Marilyn Marks of the uh, Coalition for Good Governance. We've had her on the show many times. They've joined that suit uh, regarding the absentee ballot rejection in uh, in Georgia. So uh, they are also uh, the folks behind the 866-hour-vote hotline. I would urge you to write that number down. I'll keep reminding you about it between now and Election Day and even after Election Day, I suspect. Contact them, 866-OUR-VOTE. If you have any questions about voting around the country or any problems that you may be having at either early voting or absentee voting or on Election Day itself, write that number down. One of the problems, for example, that has been reportedly cropping up in Georgia is that voters whose photo IDs have a different address on them than they are registered at, uh, they're being turned away, reportedly, in some cases, or being forced to vote with a provisional ballot. If you live in Georgia and you have an acceptable form of ID, you can vote on a normal ballot, period. A normal ballot, not a provisional, which is more easily discarded than a normal ballot is. No matter what address is on your ID, the ID law is not about uh, in Georgia is not about checking your address. It's about checking to make sure you are who you say you are. The law does not. Well, you might argue it's about keeping people from voting, but the law does not require IDs match addresses in Georgia. So please let folks know that in Georgia, the, it's, the law is meant to check identity, not address. So, for example, if you're a student with an out-of-state driver's license, yes, you can vote on a normal ballot in Georgia if you are properly registered there at your school, where you may be uh, going to school, college, or whatever, 
Or if you recently moved, but you haven't updated your driver's license yet, yes, you can still vote at your new precinct, no matter what address is on your license. So I urge people to know the law, where they vote. And if you don't, uh, if you have any questions, please call 866-OUR-VOTE. They will help you. Do not be intimidated into not voting this year. And if possible, do so on a normal ballot, not a provisional ballot. Everyone has the right to cast a vote, even if it has to be on a provisional ballot. But those are counted even if it's easier to throw them away. So fight like hell to vote on a normal ballot in the state of Georgia. Do not be intimidated. Okay, uh, I got to get our guest is standing by, so I got to take a quick break here and we will come back. Um, the uh, fight to vote in Florida, as usual, is on. Uh, but for some people, uh, voting at all, given the devastation of Hurricane Michael, is no easy feat. We'll take a quick break and talk about that and more on the broadcast with my guest, Harold Feld of publicknowledge.org. That's next. Don't go away. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Good luck doing that. Good luck calling anyone if you happen to be in one of the uh, areas that were devastated uh, just uh, just under two weeks ago in the panhand- Florida Panhandle or elsewhere in the area by Hurricane Michael. Uh, yes, we are all obsessed with the upcoming elections and the many shameful efforts to block the vote all over the country, particularly in southern states. But in one of those states, as we reported last Friday, some people may not be able to vote at all this year after their homes and, yes, precincts were completely destroyed by Hurricane Michael, which may also have blown away absentee ballots and the IDs that many voters need to be able to vote in that state. Worse, some of those voters are still unable to use the Internet or even their telephones now, some, uh, well, two weeks or so after the record-breaking Category 4 storm made landfall on Florida's panhandle. It's been nearly two weeks now since Michael slammed the panhandle and decimated entire cities. At least 36 were killed by the storm across four states as the death toll ticked up yet again over this past weekend, bringing the official death toll up to 36 in the uh, and uh, 26 alone in the state of Florida, where hundreds are still reported as missing. According to the Miami Herald on Friday, state emergency officials also said they have not yet confirmed some deaths because of damaged infrastructure and bad communications in Bay and Gulf counties. State emergency officials said it's hard to track deaths in counties like those because many of the medical examiner's officers were without power or water, and cell service remains limited in many of those areas as of last Friday. 
Sherry Matson, who lives in a small community in Washington County, said she fears her neighbors may be dead. Uh, she is homebound due to illness and says that many of her neighbors were elderly and were without power for at least a week. She said she hasn't seen much aid come to her rural community. She said, my neighbors could be laying in their homes dead. No one is coming around and checking on people. It's even more isolated here than it was before, according to the Miami Herald, she said. In a controversial report covered by Reuters last week, Houston-based Crowdsource Rescue reported that more than a thousand people were still missing as of last Wednesday. A week after Hurricane Michael flattened community, communities across the panhandle when they lost contact with friends and family, leading hundreds of volunteers from the Houston-based group to search for those with whom contact had been lost for at least a full week. Most of those missing are from Panama City, and many are elderly, disabled, impoverished, or live alone, according to a spokesperson for the group. Those who are missing may be with relatives and friends and were not necessarily presumed dead. It's difficult to know, as the Washington Post reported late last week. Residents in towns like tiny Alford, Florida, have watched supply trucks pass through as officials reestablish transportation lines to the coast, but those supply trucks are not stopping. Alford is just one of many communities that were still without power, food, or clean water as efforts focus on more visible areas along the shore. Seventy percent of rural roads in that region remain blocked or washed out or are missing bridges, meaning that residents of Florida and South Georgia who don't live in towns have seen little, if any, assistance so far, and many may still be unable to call for help. People live miles apart, and that makes it much harder in a situation like this, according to uh, uh, search and rescue officials. With power and cell service out in many areas, it's hard to determine how many people are experiencing serious issues even now. Even in areas where 911 calls can go out, all but the calls being identified as immediately life-threatening were reportedly being ignored last week, according to the Miami Herald, which reported that in towns 50 miles from the coast, the destruction from Michael is still massive and mostly unseen on either news reports or even by emergency officials. But Crowdsource said a number of its missing person reports resulted from widespread phone and power outages. At least 80% of customers in three mainly rural panhandle counties were without electricity still late last week, and officials said it could be weeks before power returns to, uh, to some, leaving even those with restored cell signals unable to reach friends, relatives, or public officials if their cell services have, uh, their cell phones, I should say, have run out of battery power. Officials say their search and recovery efforts have been hindered by spotty cell coverage in the devastated areas, though authorities are making some progress in restoring communications there. Many residents have also expressed frustration at the slow pace of recovery of those wireless networks. Federal Communications Commission Chair Ajit Pai last week called for wireless carriers to waive bills for customers affected by the storm. Well, that's thoughtful of him, isn't it? In the meantime, this week, 
Hurricane Willa on Monday became a monster Category 5 storm off of Mexico's Pacific coast. Landfall is expected on Tuesday there before remnants of the storm move into central Texas, where huge amounts of rainfall and flooding could occur before that same weather system works its way up to the east coast, where it could combine with another system by week's end to become yet another fierce storm in the northeast which recalls Superstorm Sandy, a Category 3 hurricane that slammed the Northeast just days before the 2012 election, bringing rain, record rainfall, flooding, and power and phone service outages across the region for days and weeks. Hopefully, that does not occur again this time, but after the damage from the catastrophic Sandy in 2012, the, Ob the Obama administration took action to try and help avoid the power and phone outages that crippled the response and recovery following that storm. When Donald Trump, however, took office in 2017, his FCC, led by uh, Chairman Ajit Pai, went about reversing some of the regulations regarding phone coverage put in place after Stan Sandy because, you know, regulation of any sort apparently is just a terrible thing even if it helps keep Americans safer in a climate-changing, global-warming-fueled world where such storms seem to be rapidly increasing now in both intensity and frequency. In Florida, as, yes, the wreckage of Hurricane Michael just two weeks ago continues to cripple large swaths of the panhandle, public safety advocates are arguing that the deregulation by Trump's FCC as well as similar deregulation by Republican Florida Governor Rick Scott soon after he took office back in 2011, have left storm survivors now in a very precarious situation. Joining us now to explain how those deregulatory moves when it comes to our nation's phone system have endangered residents living on our coasts and or in the paths of such increasingly intense and dangerous storms, not to mention all of the other disasters, natural and otherwise, that Americans face around the country, is Harold Feld. He is a senior vice president at the nonprofit, nonpartisan publicknowledge.org, which advocates for, among other things, universal and affordable access to open networks and communications tools. He previously served at the Media Access Project for almost 10 years, where he advocated for the public interest in media, telecommunications, and technology policy. And prior to that, he worked on the Freedom of Information Act, the Privacy Act, and accountability issues at the Department of Energy and clerked for the D.C. Court of Appeals. Harold Feld, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. I, I know that you have been w warning, frankly, about such a moment as what we are now seeing uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael uh, for years. In a statement released by Public Knowledge last week, you cited the alarm expressed by both Florida Governor Rick Scott and Donald Trump's FCC chair, uh, Ajit Pai, regarding the, quote, slow pace of repairs for Florida's communication services. But neither of the men are, are taking any responsibility, at least in part, for their own actions that have resulted in this mess. Two different regulatory actions, at least two, uh, that you cite have resulted in some of this mess. Let's go through both of them uh, very quickly. First, back in 2011, just after taking office, 
Republican Governor Scott signed the Regulatory Reform Act of 2011. How did that measure help undermine Florida's residential telephone service that we're seeing today? Well, that act was a complete deregulation of the telephone industry in Florida. It removed the state uh, public service commission from any sort of jurisdiction over residential telephone service. Uh, it removed something called carrier of last resort, uh, which means there always has to be a telephone provider in the area. It even removed the ability of the uh, Public Service Commission to take complaints from consumers. Those are now referred to the uh, Agriculture uh, Department. Um, So the effect of this was to ensure that there was no plan for preparation, no oversight, uh, and now that Michael has hit, there is no method of reporting who has telephone service and who doesn't Mm. other than self-reporting by the companies. And and you say, and I know I shouldn't ask because this is Florida, but uh, the deregulation was so thorough that complaints are not even allowed at the Florida uh, Public Service Commission? That's right. Uh, This was uh, one of the most radical deregulations in the country. Um, And in uh, a number of places where there is still uh, Mm -hmm. a role for the Public Service Commission as sort of a a collector of complaints and ombudsman um, going back to the companies, trying to ask them to uh, remedy complaints, even though they don't have authority to compel them, uh, the number of complaints they get is sufficiently embarrassing that the companies have pushed for uh, legislation that doesn't even allow the uh, public service to uh, commission to take consumer complaints in the first place. So there's no record of what's going on. So when uh, Rick Scott came in, and I should note Rick Scott is now running for the U.S. Senate against the incumbent Democrat Bill Nelson. Uh, He's termed out as governor. But when he came in, he did this deregulation in 2011. How long, what what kind of regulations are we talking about as far as how long those had been in place before they were removed by Scott? There were several Republican governors uh, before him. Were they put in place by those governors, or had these been decades-old regulations? These have been decades-old regulations. We have closely regulated the telephone uh, uh, industry since the 1930s, recognizing it as a public utility essential infrastructure. Um, And uh, uh, what has happened over time is there has been gradual deregulation. And in fact, there's been deregulation in every state. So uh, we started with very comprehensive rules that govern service quality, that govern emergency preparedness, um, that uh, allow the uh, um, Public Service Commission to uh, impose deadlines to restore service and fines if they miss those deadlines. Uh, and uh, those have been gradually reduced and gradually whittled away um, in just about all states. But uh, Florida uh, just uh, went ahead and eliminated all of their uh, uh, oversight of the telephone uh, industry uh, with one legislative stroke in 2011. Mm. And, of course, there are there were, I should say, uh, federal regulations in place uh, that presumably Florida would still have had to follow even after they deregulated in 2011. Uh, But as mentioned earlier, in November of 2017, even after the monster storms, Hurricane Harvey in in Texas last year and Hurricanes Maria and Irma slammed Puerto Rico and, and parts of Florida, FCC chair Ajit Pai 
uh, repealed many of the safeguards that were put in place by the Obama administration's FCC following Superstorm Sandy. What were those regulations designed to do and what was the justification for reversing them under Trump's FCC? Well, um, after uh, Sandy, we had the situation where uh, um, Verizon did not want to restore its wireline service uh, in certain communities, where they decided it was just too expensive, uh, and so uh, they instead decided that everybody there could rely on just cellular service. Now, the problem is, in a lot of these communities, uh, the cellular service is not that good. It's not reliable. Uh, there were a lot of issues of uh, uh, with uh, with what they proposed, which was a technology called VoiceLink, uh, and it was uh, just uh, um, a truly awful experience for uh, the people of Fire Island, which was the community in uh, question, uh, mm-hmm. until the FCC and uh, the New York Public Service uh, uh, Commission uh, basically put their uh, foot down, and Verizon uh, decided voluntarily, rather than go through uh, um, the regulatory process, to bring fiber out to uh, Fire Island. That triggered a multi-year proceeding at the FCC looking at what happens when the copper lines are swept away. What kind of uh, replacement can you get, uh, and how quickly do you have to uh, have that back in place? And so over the course of several years, the FCC uh, put a number of rules in uh, place to clarify that if your network is washed away in a you know, or otherwise destroyed in a natural disaster, um, then you either have to restore uh, service in a you know, relatively reasonable period of time, or you have to go through the process of discontinuing the old network, the copper network, mm-hmm. and demonstrating that the new network that you propose to build in its place uh, is going to uh, be as good or better than the old network. Not repairing it was not an option. Uh, there was uh, explicitly a rule that the FCC put in place um, which said you can't just abandon this and not file a discontinuance to replace the network, and you can't you know, just leave it sitting there broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had those regulations were in place, um, and then uh, the uh, Trump administration came in, um, and Chairman Pai, who I will uh, uh, say dissented. He was on the FCC as a commissioner uh, during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, insisted that there was no reason for any of these regulations, that companies uh, have uh, private incentive to uh, um, uh, put, deploy these networks, despite everything that actually happened in you know Fire Island and mm-hmm. evidence from the real world. He kept insisting that these rules were not necessary. Um, and, of course, uh, that uh, they were a uh, barrier to investment, that they were discouraging uh, companies, uh, forcing them to keep up these uh, uh, old uh, and obsolete networks, which is not true. It simply required that they show that they were replacing those networks with something as good or better. Uh, and uh, one of the first things he did on coming in was to repeal most of the safeguards that uh, were put in place uh, follow in this uh, uh, lengthy process after Sandy, and then this past May, uh, essentially uh, got rid of the uh, remaining uh, safeguards by creating an expedited process by which uh, these uh, telephone companies can just exit the market entirely. 
and and this notion that these phone companies they don't need to be regulated they're just going to do the right thing i mean this seems to be this seems to be knowledge that is decades old that we know that they won't and in fact if i understand it correctly uh historically the uh, AT&T way back then, the Bell system, was sort of given the right to have a monopoly across the country when it came to building out the phone services in exchange for their prob- uh, promise that they would service uh, rural areas where they might not you know, make money by uh, you know, putting out copper wire but that that was the trade-off for them having essentially monopoly control of the phone system for so many decades. So we know that when it comes to phone systems, it may not be profitable for them to be in certain areas, but we required that as a public safety issue. Those requirements now seem to be gone after the deregulation under under Trump? That's correct, Uh, and uh, this has been a fundamental value of our uh, uh, communications laws basically since the founding of the Republic uh, when we said we're going to have a post office, Congress is going to have a national post office, and it's going to have the authority to build postal roads everywhere. Because mm-hmm. we say recognizing that you know it's always going to be profitable in the cities, it's not going to be profitable once you get out uh, um, into the rural areas. So we as a country want to be able to communicate with each other. Uh, we think it's important uh, for commerce, for emergencies, uh, and we've carried that tradition through in each upgrade of our communications network, when we went from letters to the telegraph, when we went from telegraph to the telephone. Mm-hmm. The problem is we have not done that as we've moved from the telephone, the traditional copper line telephone, to broadband and wireless services. So um, it would be one thing if we said, okay, you know, we're going to phase out the old wireline network um, and we're going to bring in uh, these new wireless networks or uh, these broadband fiber networks, and those will be our uh, uh, regulated networks where we make sure that service goes everywhere. But what we've done instead is to say, well, we didn't regulate the wireless network because we had this copper safety net, this regulated copper network that was uh, uh, there for public safety and everything else. And now we've gotten rid of the regulation on the copper network Mm. without replacing it with any kind of backstop uh, with these new technologies. And, you know, the argument was, well, you know, number one, we don't want to hinder investment. Um, Well, okay, you're always going to get investment in the urban areas. It's the rural areas where, you know, you can deregulate uh, you know, forever, and it doesn't make it more profitable to deploy uh, in these areas. Um, and you know, what we're left with is a situation where, at the best of times, communication in this in these areas can be spotty mm-hmm. because you don't get a good return on investment as a private company. Um, and as for you know, paying to take uh, precautions for an emergency, making sure that you have backup power in place or backup towers in place. You know, forget about that. You're not going to spend that money if you don't have to. Yeah, in the best of times, things aren't great, and uh, certainly after a, a, a catastrophe like Hurricane Michael and so many that we're seeing, it is once again these rural areas that seem to be. 
uh, paying the price for these decisions. In, in your uh, statement at Public Knowledge, Harold Feld, you argue that this should be a wake-up call for the 37 states, 37 states, that have eliminated traditional oversight of telecommunication services and, uh, and those states considering similar deregulation. Uh, these are critical communication services that cannot be left without some kind of public oversight. But yet it seems they are. Now, that's a lot of states, 37 states. I know public knowledge is a nonpartisan organization. But are the uh, states in question here decidedly more Republican than Democratic controlled when it comes to doing away with these um, with these uh, regulations? Well, I, I will point out that uh, the telephone lobby is very uh, very persistent, and even states like California, which are you know traditionally very democratic, have deregulated mm-hmm. uh, their telecommunication sector uh, a great deal. Um, so I think that part of the problem is it works until it doesn't work. Yeah. And we have a system that uh, worked very well for a very long time because we had significant oversight to make sure it worked. So it was very easy for people to believe, well, you know, it'll be okay, what could go wrong? And now we find that, yeah, you know, if you don't have any kind of oversight, if you don't uh, make sure people are maintaining it, you know, it goes to pot. You, uh, it, it should be noted, by the way, that uh, many of the, uh, those uh, 37 states, their legislation was uh, an example of that template legislation that we've been talking about for so many years now that has been pushed by the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, this sort of uh, uh, super governmental uh, agreement between corporations and certain lawmakers to pass this type of cookie-cutter legislation in one state after another. Um, Harold, in a letter last week to uh, Chairman Pai, Florida's own chief financial officer and state fire marshal, uh, Jimmy Petronas, who happens to be a resident of the Panhandle, he wrote a letter citing uh, that there were uh, 17% fewer copper wire phone companies in uh, customers, I should say, in Florida in 2017 than in 2016, noting that he uh, witnessed the devastation caused by Hurricane Michael as the path for these companies uh, doing away with copper wire uh, phone lines is clear. He says with entire uh, communities wiped off the map, he was deeply troubled by how catastrophic the failure of wireless communication has been in the storm. And he, like you, is recommending industry-wide measures to prevent downed telecommunications for extended periods after these kinds of storms. Now, both he and you have asked the FCC to reverse and reconsider uh, their own reversal of the safeguards that were put in place after Superstorm Sandy, but then reversed again by the uh, uh, Trump administration when they took office. Uh, indeed, public knowledge is actually suing the FCC to that effect. Has there been any indications yet from Pi and his FCC that they are interested in revisiting these deregulatory measures that you and, yes, Florida's own chief financial officer are now essentially begging him to reconsider? Well, um, since uh, the response from Chairman Pai was the usual, how dare you politicize a tragedy and point out how our policies have uh, mm. uh, contributed to this uh, tragedy. Shame on you. Mm. Uh, I think the answer is no. Uh, I will say that 
Um, Jessica Rosenworcel, who is the one Democrat uh, who is uh, uh, still on the commission, the commission has a uh, vacancy since the other uh, Democratic commissioner uh, stepped down uh, in the spring, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, she has repeatedly called, both before this and now, uh, you know, once again, uh, has been repeatedly calling for the FCC to take action to um, to reexamine its uh, you know policy of mm-hmm. uh, deregulation um, and to put in place genuine safeguards that uh, will ensure a functioning communications infrastructure and one that is uh, you know reliable mm-hmm. and uh, robust and can recover quickly after a disaster like this. Uh, we've got just a, another quick minute here, uh, Harold Feld. Uh, you know, we cover a lot of things on this show, such as the need for reform of our voting and election system and the dire threat posed by climate change that seem uh, as if they require years and even more tragically, I guess, disasters before anybody really seems to take action. Uh, is, is this one of the, those issues as you see it? I know you got one person on the FCC who is interested. Do you have any indication that the string of recent disasters here may at least cause some in, in Congress to rethink their uh, industry-friendly, if wildly dangerous to Americans, uh, policies here? And if not, what will it take? Well, I, I certainly hope so, and I uh, hope that you know the states that uh, are uh, looking at this and looking at the aftermath um, take the opportunity to reevaluate their policies uh, and ask themselves how are we prepared how are we preparing here for whether it's a wildfire or a tornado or another hurricane you know how are we preparing our communications infrastructure what kind of oversight do we have in place or are we just leaving it to the private sector and hoping that everything will turn out okay uh, I think that uh, this is uh, uh, something where, uh, unfortunately, uh, many people uh, in Congress have been happy to just say, well, you know, if it's okay with the states and it's okay um, with the FCC, um, then uh, I guess it must be okay. Uh, I'm certainly hopeful that uh, now that uh, members are uh, uh, out there and seeing the, uh, the devastation uh, um, in their own districts or in neighboring districts, um, and uh, that uh, they mm-hmm. will uh, uh, reconsider uh, these policies and uh, really think uh, long and hard about the kind of oversight we need to keep our uh, critical communications infrastructure running. All of which makes this uh, gu- gubernatorial election in uh, Florida coming up in just weeks between Democrat Andrew Gillum and Republican Ron DeSantis, I would argue, uh, all the more important. Harold Feld. Uh, Senior Vice President at PublicKnowledge.org. You can find his work over there. You can follow them on the Twitters at Public Knowledge. You can uh, also find uh, Harold's important blog, the Sausage Factory blog, at WetMachine.com. And you can follow him and stalk him on the Twitters at Harold Feld. Harold, really appreciate your work and uh, you're taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. All right, that's it for me today. I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to uh, all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you responsible for us being on the air at all. Those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. 
please stop by if you haven't yet. Bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 